Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Scott Frisch is the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for AARP. He's responsible for all enterprise-wide operational and financial matters, including human resources, information technology, real estate, and facilities management, as well as data and analytics performance management. Since his appointment as COO, Scott has helped guide AARP through a period of dynamic change, re-engineering the operational functions of the organization to maximize efficiencies and increase operating reserves. He established a $40 million investment fund that spurs innovation in health and wellness, as well as a $60 million investment vehicle to accelerate research into cures for all types of dementia, including Alzheimer's. Scott is a certified public accountant and previously held the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA Series 6 and 63 licenses. He's a board member on the Greater Washington Board of Trade, treasurer and chair of the Audit and Finance Committee of Downtown D.C., Business Improvement Council, and on the Board of Advisors for CBC Financial. Scott is also a member of the Connected DMV COVID-19 Strategic Renewal Task Force, a collaboration of regional leaders focused on accelerating the economic and business recovery of the greater Washington area in the wake of the novel coronavirus outbreak. So Scott, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we were just laughing a little bit before we um, before we went live just about the the age requirements of AARP, and I was joking that years ago that I got a, a magazine in the mail, and I'm like, wait, I'm not old enough to be in. But tell us a little bit about the um, what AARP is, and and I guess even kind of the new age requirements of it. Sure. So AARP is the largest non nonpartisan nonprofit organization uh, in the country, with nearly 38 million members serving. Uh, the 50 plus audience in the U.S. Um, so we are, you know, we're a rather big uh, nonprofit. And if you think about us for a second as background, a lot of people ask you, you know, what do you do? What, what's the size of the organization? We operate sort of what I describe as the, at the nexus of advocacy work at the federal, state, and local level. We, we run the largest, uh, most widely read magazine in the country, if not the world, the ARP magazine that hits, you know, re- readership about 38 million or so people. Um, whereas, you know, we're a media powerhouse in some ways, you could describe it that way. Um, and we operate in every state in the country and the territory. So we're across the country and we're, we're diversified across um, advocacy, publications, licensing our, our intellectual property to have products being sold into our membership um, that add value to people's lives across health and wealth or health security, financial security, and personal fulfillment. Um, so it's a, it's a great organization that uh, has a huge impact on people's lives. Interesting. The way that, I'm glad you mentioned the magazine. The way that I first heard about AARP was around 20 years ago. I was the COO for a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And we had a, um, an in-house PR team that we were building. We identified a lot of the top publications we wanted to get covered in. And we came up with AARP as the top magazine by circulation. And I think the Costco magazine might have been number two. And um, yeah, you guys were staggeringly large. We, it yeah, was- that's, so we're still there, actually. We're still the most widely circulated magazine um, and most widely read. And yeah, it's a, it's a great place for people to uh, communicate to the 50-plus audience. 
and I think back to your original question about the age requirement. So we are 50 plus and, you know, I've been at ARP for almost 16 years. It's been 50 plus at least since I've been there. And I believe, I don't remember exactly when we went from uh, 55 to 50, but it was a long time ago. Sure. Uh, but, you know, we will find you at 50. We, we always do. So are you preparing, are you preparing us at 50 for retirement? Because it seems like people are retiring later in life. Is it? Well, you know, it used to be called uh, the American Association of Retired uh, Persons. And we dropped the name mm. and just went with the letters, you know, among, again, this also predates me, but primarily because of that, exactly how you just framed it. People aren't necessarily retiring at 55 or 60 or 65 anymore. They're People are working longer either because they have to financially mm-hmm. uh, or because longer. they want to, right? I mean, a lot of people want to work and uh, they love being part of something. Uh, they love the social connection. So we are, um, we've shifted to that, uh, taking away the, the concept of retirement because it, it means something different to everybody no matter what age you are. Got it. Makes sense. Tell, tell me a little bit about the, um, the organization internally. What's it look like and feel like internally? Well, so, it, um, you know, we're about 22, 2300 staff, uh, primarily headquartered in Washington, D.C., um, but we do have offices, as I said, in every state in the, um, in the country, primarily on the, on the advocacy side. But if you look at ARP strategy, we focus around really three prongs, and it all our social mission, we're a social mission organization, we're not a membership organization, mm. uh, so we're a 501c4. We have a for-profit arm that handles all of the, you know, everyone talks about the ARP travel discounts. Well, that's, that's part of what the for-profit arm does. We also have a foundation, the ARP foundation, which is our charitable arm, which is a 501c3 that focuses on the low-income elderly, um, really around focus areas of hunger, uh, income, housing, and isolation, uh, among other things. So structurally, you think about it as you have a parent nonprofit, and then you have a for-profit arm and you have a uh, charitable foundation. And then, as I said, we focus around three real areas of uh, health security, financial resilience, and, and personal fulfillment. So, you know, one of the things I'm really curious about when an organization gets to your size, and this was um, probably what I struggled most with, and I get the sense that you don't, is how do you not, you know, when you're leading an organization of 2,200 people, how do you not get dragged down into the details? How do you allow yourself to stay at a strategic level or a leadership level? How do you prevent yourself from, from wanting to get into everything that you could get involved in? It's not easy. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it depends on the personality of the individual, but regardless, it's not easy. I, I, I think, you know, in my career, I've, you know, I, I've had the sort of upward progression of increasing responsibility and increasing sizes of organizations along Mm. with increasing responsibilities at the same time. Um, So what you do in this role, at least, uh, or at any leadership role for an organization that is, let's say, you know, I was on the phone yesterday with a friend of mine who's becoming CEO of a startup that's, you know, doesn't even have office space yet. (laughs) Details he's going to work through, much like I'm sure you did at the beginning of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, is vastly different than, um, you know, the COO or the CEO of an organization that's been around for 62 years like Mm -hmm. AERP. Mm -hmm. I think the key is um, you have to get, at least in my case, I have to get enough comfort with um, 
an understanding of what drives the business. What are those key drivers? What are those key risks to the business? And then thirdly, although equally as important, is making sure you have a comfort level with your staff that run those areas. And then you get a sort of uh, an intuitive sense of where you need to jump in versus not. Um, but unless you really understand the business and understand the drivers and the risks, you're naturally going to want to get in your hands into every little detail. And that's, that's not the way to run an organization. And how long have you been at ARP now? It'll be uh, 16 years at the uh, end of the summer. And have you progressed in the organization then since you've been there as well? You didn't come in as COO? No, no, uh, correct. I have progressed. I started off as CFO of uh, a subsidiary of our for-profit arm. It was called ARP Financial. They were an investment advisor to a series of um, uh, newly created ARP mutual funds. Okay. And my background prior to that was in the mutual fund industry and then public accounting before that. So Harvard, Harvard wrote an article about 16 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And one of the things that they identified was that every COO is really completely different. They came up with seven, I think, distinct types of chief operating officers. Um, and as I've always said, you know, one would be very outward facing, one's inward facing, one might be very, um, you know, financially minded, one might be very systems and processes, one might be sales and marketing. You tend to bend towards the financial side and you also operate as CFO. That's right. That, that's true. So, you know, after leaving the, the subsidiary, uh, the, the ARP Financial, I was named CFO of the for-profit arm. And then six years ago, I was named COO of the parent. And then a few months later, I forget, six, eight months later, I added the CFO umbrella underneath that. Um, and you, I, I, I vaguely remember that article. Um, and I think... Um, having two roles, one is the CFO and one is the COO is sort of a dichotomy in my brain. I have one side that thinks about um, growth and, the, and with efficiency. And I have the other side of my brain that thinks about financial allocation of resources. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, I think having both makes me better, even though it's double the work. Yeah. Um, but it does give you a different mindset as a chief operating officer to, to figure out how to drive the business within the financial restraints that you have. Yeah, I was talking to one of my team the other day. We've got a, an organization called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for second in commands. And about a third of our members act as the CFO as well as the COO, and about 70% do not. Um, and then about the same, about 30% operate as the head of technology, or they at least have technology and IT and engineering reporting into them. And then, you know, another group really doesn't. And it's really interesting to see the, the skill set. And I think it's very different from, from almost every other role in the company. You know, you don't have um, other roles running completely different functional areas. So how do you balance your time with those? Well, I think... Um, time, time and I guess also just the bandwidth, like your cycle time of your own brain. Uh, I, I, those are two difficult questions. One, how do I balance it? Again, it, six years into this, um, I have a really good team underneath me that run all the individual departments, you know, whether it's the finance, treasury, tax, IT, HR, so forth and so on. Um, you know, it takes time to build your team, build the underlying staff, and to get the blocking and tackling done um, correctly. Um, I'm at the, we're at the point where it goes back to one of your early questions. The blocking and tackling is working. The foundation's built. You know, the house is built. The roof's on you know, the plumbing works. And now it's how do you fine tune? How do you maintain? And how do you build enough 
uh, capacity for the future for whatever strategic direction we go in. Um, in terms of in terms of how do I allocate the time in my brain, you know, this job is about volume. It's a volume of activity. Um, it's you know it's not easy, but it's a, there's a lot of hours and. I just try to stay as current as possible. And it's uh, a lot of that is based on time. It's, mm. it's a lot of hours. How many hours? How many hours a week? Well, I typically go 12 hours a day on a normal day. And five or six days a week? Uh, five days a week and the weekends are whatever's necessary. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's funny, the older I get, I tend to, uh, I tend to uh, value that time in the morning and that time at night to clean up everything, to get myself ready for the next day uh, from a work perspective. Um, yeah. But it's, it's an, in, in my case, and I'm just personally for me, it's just an hour. It's, you know, how much I can get done in a day and whatever I need to do on the weekends. So what's the, the leadership team that you're on? Who, who do you report to? You report to, is there a CEO or a board? I do. I report to the CEO of AARP. Uh, her name's Joanne Jenkins, a uh, fabulous transformational leader. Uh, and she obviously reports to the board of directors. And then how many reports would she have? How many are at your level or, or kind of on your team? Uh, at her, so I have to think about this. So I'd say there's probably nine of her. She probably has nine direct reports, including wow. myself. Okay. And then how many, and how many have you got? I've got, I believe eight. Eight. Okay. So if you guys were running like a strategic planning meeting for the, for the organization, it would be nine of you ish. Yeah. Her, her yeah. and her and her direct reports plus our you know strategy team. We have a strategy group that, you know, an enterprise strategy group that would lead that. Hey, quick, quick question just because of the timing that we're in right now, but with this whole, um, you know, COVID-19 that we're in the midst of, how have you had to, change and adapt as an organization during this have you has it been work from home has it been work from office is there yeah no we we that's a good question we we went uh, i believe march saturday march 13th or we made the decision to go fully remote uh so all of our locations all across the country 100 percent remote you know the good news is you know five or six years ago when joanne and i came on board in our current roles, because she used to be the chief operating officer and then previously the ARP Foundation CEO. Um, one of the big things was to, and I, as I say, get the blocking tackling done. And that was to one of those things in our IT world to ensure that we had the right infrastructure because, you know, well, listen, you know, DC, we all get hit with hurricanes and snowstorms and we've had issues like most companies in the past about bandwidth. So we made a concerted effort to build up that resilience from an infrastructure standpoint, fast forward, um, you know, to March, we we literally s- turned it on, and that Monday we were fully remote. We had a couple of hiccups with some of our connections with some of our service providers, but those were out of our control. And other than that, we have been uh, as efficient as we've always been, um, and have not literally have not missed a beat. It's pretty extraordinary when you think that, you know, if, if we would have had this conversation in February about, hey, could you ever take AARP remote? They'd be like, there's no way it could never happen. There's like, it, it would be impossible, right? How could you ever take a 2200 person organization remote over the course of a week? Are you going to go back? Are you going to become a hybrid online offline business or? So, you thoughts? know, we, we, we are going to go back. Um, we, like I said, we have offices in every state in the country and our headquarters in DC. You know, we will be back. Um, we've always had a very, um, what I would call, um, we've always had flexible work arrangements 
where we have telecommuting where people, you know, can, you know, work from home for a day or we have telework, which is a full-time telework status. You're working out of your house or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we do have a flexible work model, um, which has allowed us to transition into this easily. And, you know, and listen, the COVID environment, people have, myself included, you know, we're, you're nervous about getting on the subway. You're nervous about getting on an airplane. You're nervous about being around people. So we're working through all those mechanics and all those, decisions um just like every other big organ every other organization no matter the size is thinking through the same thing yeah for, uh, for me it's the commute time my commute this morning was two and a half minutes from my bedroom to the kitchen and you know <laughs> i know right no traffic, I mean, no, no traffic no parking and the waiter's really friendly so that's right and you pick up an extra hour and a half to two hours of your day that you don't normally have and mm-hmm. um you know that is great on the other hand a lot of people use work as a way to uh connect with people socially. Yeah. Um, and I do, I find myself, you know, sitting here in my office in my house for 12 hours a day is you get a little, uh, I get a little antsy. Yeah. We do but, miss that social interaction for sure. Exactly. So w- with your team, what do you focus on? You mentioned the key drivers and the key risks and then kind of um, really kind of paying attention and, and some of that intuition related to your team. Can you walk us through your the team that you lead and and how do you lead them um, and maybe some ideas around the key drivers and key risks that you think about? Well, uh, you know, there's, I think um, being the COO and I'm going to include the CFO function underneath that from my own lens and what I can control to the extent that I can control it. My real risk is operational risk. So do we have the ability to have the resources, financial or otherwise, to allow us to fulfill our social mission, um, which is really to empower people to choose how they live as they age, summed up in one phrase. So my, my job is really first to reduce that operational risk to as close to zero after controls as possible. So what's the residual risk left? Um, so that's first and foremost in my mind. Um, the second, um, the second one is what are the trends in the business, whether operational or not, that would allow, that would either allow us to continue to scale our mission through our activities and programs that we run all across the country, or are there other drivers or trend drivers or trends that are saying hmm, something may not be working or not be hitting its numbers or not. And I don't mean financially, I mean, you know, engagement, engagement with our members is very important to us. Uh, so I look at both the operational risk to allow us to function. And then what are those drivers and trends that allow us to make sure that we are scaling as, and getting as deep of impact as possible from an engagement perspective? What kind of, what kind of operational things right now are going to block the organization? What, you, what have you been removing or what obstacles are you helping your team remove? Well, I would say the, the biggest thing that has been removed was, uh, to your point earlier, about three years ago, we, we made the decision that our um, national headquarters and our infrastructure and our building was not going to allow us to attract and retain uh, people for AARP. It wasn't going to allow us to have the mobility um, and technological advancements that we needed to run the organization. So we, we started three years ago on, a, on both a renovation of our headquarters, 
um, and something we call workforce of the future. Um, and workforce of the future really was um, ensuring that every staff person had the appropriate technology and tools and the building itself, uh, data center, et cetera, all of that had the right infrastructure to allow ourselves to be fully mobile. And I wish, I, you know, no one could say three years ago they were going to foresee a pandemic where the entire world would be essentially in a quarantine, everyone working from home. I wish I could say I had that, that you know, vision, but I didn't. Um, but luckily, that project, which lasted a few years and culminated uh, in December of 2019, positioned us to really turn on a dime and make the switch in March to go fully remote. It's amazing. It's, I think anybody who had a vision for what we'd be in now had to be involved in the cannabis sector three years ago uh, to have that. They, they'd be really high to come up with this kind of Yeah, scenario. I mean, I really wish I could say that. But, uh, you know, we just we had made that decision because operationally, you know, we couldn't when you're when you're distributed like the way we are across the entire country, you need to be able to have the communication technology. Um, and we just didn't it just wasn't as, you know, it was old, old legacy items. What's really interesting, though, is you're, you're speaking more and, and the iteration or the, the changes that you made in the last few years sounds more like a Gen Y organization than it does run by AARP. I mean, from, the, from a consumer's mindset, I would have thought that it was that you would have been very bogged down in those, those old legacy systems and you're not at all. No, not, not at all. I, I, you know, if you'd asked me that question seven years ago, I would have said, sure. Uh, I would have agreed with the fact that we were, you know, we had outgrown the technology that we had. Uh, you know, we've gone through a ERP that consolidated multiple uh, systems in one from an enterprise resource uh, management and planning system. So our back of the house, back office, general ledger and all that has been updated. We needed the technology infrastructure uh, and then we needed uh, the tools, both things like Skype or Teams, uh, laptops, et cetera. And then we needed um, uh, the right protocols around all of it. And we really moved ourselves from an operation perspective into, you know, what I would say the 21st century. And that's just on the operational side. Right. How are you growing your team? I've always believed that a leader's core job is to grow people. How, do you focus on that at all? I do. I, I do. Now, I'm, I think I'd say from an adding team, adding members, uh, I think we're pretty um, constrained on adding the actual numbers. But yeah, I meant growing the skill set, not the numbers for sure. Sure. So um, because we don't necessarily add a lot of staff um, and we have a very long tenure of people on average at AARP, my job uh, and all of our senior leaders, in fact, every manager one of my biggest pieces of my job is making sure that my staff um, has the development needed to be ready for that next position. And that next position could be, hey, it could be my job. It could be a lateral move. It could be outside the organization. But when you have long tenured staff, you need to keep them, A, motivated and B, on a, on a continuous learning journey. Hmm. So we've done things like, for instance, we run a uh, program with Georgetown University called Agile. We bring in all of our VPs and SVPs into a classroom, but I think it's over six months and they go through a sort of an executive ed program tailored for us. And we have other programs that hit the next level down and we have a, a very good virtual learning system 
for the entire staff to participate in. And then I think there's also, starting with the CEO on down, there's also an emphasis to make sure as things come up, a task force that's needed or a special project that's needed, that we're involving a, a cross section of the organization um, at all levels um, to help people, again, get that additional learning and experience and skill sets. And so far, it's worked pretty well. Talk about, about your skill set. What have you worked on to grow your skills over the years? I mean, you've been with the organization, as you said, for 16 years, but how have you had to, to adapt and grow? Well, you know, prior to becoming the, the COO of AARP, both of my roles at, a, at the AARP uh, subsidiaries were financial roles. But I, I had the uh, benefit, as I just said earlier, being one of those individuals that had been selected um, for projects that were well beyond my, my um, current day job. Um, and uh, the previous CEO of AARP uh, called me up one day who I had started to get to know and some other things and said, you know, how would I, how would you like to be uh, my mentee? Now, obviously you're not going to say no to the CEO. And um, you know, this goes back probably 2010, nine, sometime around there. Um, and having him sort of as that mentor, um, who he, unfortunately he has since passed away, um, he gave me a project that really was involved around helping him think through how do we get more resources into our social mission um, and streamline our infrastructure. Um, even though I was not involved at the parent, I was only at the subsidiary level. But I think that one project is a really good example of, of allowing me to get access and understanding of the, of the parent company, which then positioned me to be eventually, even though none of these were connected formally, it allowed, it gave me the skills and the understanding to make that transition, you know, whatever it was five or six years later as COO of ARP, much smoother and much more of a, a linear transition as opposed to you walking in day one saying, Oh my God, this is so big. How do I get my hands wrapped around it? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's a good, that's just a good example of where that mentor mentee special project learning agenda actually really paid off for me personally. That's cool. Talk, I'm curious about meetings for a second. I wrote a book years ago called meetings suck just because we've really never been taught how to run proper meetings and how to drive effective meetings. And we need them. We we're in meetings all the time. Curious if there's any systems that you use that have made any of the meetings that you operate or are involved in more effective. Well, uh, I don't. I don't disagree with the title of that book, um, <laughs> but uh, I had a a, uh, a previous direct report that one someone had asked um, said said to her, "I'm meeting. Uh, I'm in. A, I'm going to be presenting to Scott in a couple of weeks. Any advice on 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 meeting with Scott?" And she said. Um, I'm going to make sure I don't screw this up. She, she'll, she said, um, be prepared, be brief and be gone. Be gone. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's, you know, and that's sort of my own style is, you know, we're all very busy. So let's get to the point, uh, make sure we have, you know, an objective of the meeting, um, make sure each individual there has a chance to express their views, thoughts, opinions, don't talk over one another. Um, and then get to a decision. Um, and I just, again, maybe it's my own personal style is, uh, is I rather be brief and, and, um, but I wanted to be robust. Um, and I think that just helps to move things along and, 
as long as people get a chance to express their views and opinions and thoughts, it comes out, the decision comes out as a better one. Mm-hmm. Do you limit the amount of people that you bring into meetings at all? Do you work? I don't. That? No, I don't. I think that limits sort of the free flow and diversity of thought. Um, you know, again, you know, some people think, oh, too many people, things get bogged down. But if you got a good leader, leader of the meeting, you can manage through that. Yeah, moderate it for sure. Plus, you know, Cameron, the other thing is sometimes you want to have people to participate in the meetings that otherwise normally wouldn't as a learning experience. Yeah, it grows their skill set as well. Just, just even being around it, it helps grow their skills. Right. What um, Talk about some of the, the bureaucracy and the um, politics of, of an organization, of internal organizations. Uh, like, how do you, this is where I got really stuck at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I, I took the company from 14 people when I joined and we had 3,100 system-wide when I left. And it was just really big and, and it was complicated and, it, and I, couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around or help the, the, the politics that was starting where people were lobbying against each other and there was the back channeling. And how do you, how do you work around that, control that, um, break that, prevent silos? Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, that's a very difficult problem to solve. I, I, I don't think you're alone. I think every organization, especially the ones that are larger um, and ones that have been around a long time, I think that's unfortunately a natural occurrence. Um, I don't think we were too different from where you were. Um, and I, I think what's changed with us is we have a CEO that is a very dynamic um, and decisive individual. Um, and we recognize that in order to be as successful as we have been for the last, you know, at that point, 57 years, roughly 58 years, we need to ensure that um, we're going to be as successful for the next 60 years. Part of that was to make sure that we were all on the same page. So when you have a very decisive CEO um, and you have a lot of training and a lot of educational training about how to communicate and sort of what are the rules of the road from a values perspective, from a leadership behavior perspective, um, and we have something we used to call it straight talk, Mm -hmm. uh, which really was saying, hey, listen, say what you mean don't say yes in a meeting and walk out the door and have a side conversation with someone else with a complete dis- different view or disagreement. That's what we're there to gather for in a meeting. Let's get it on the table and hash it out. And I think that was a part of our transformation uh, six years ago. Didn't happen overnight, um, but we're at the point where I'm sure, it does. listen, don't, I'm not going to be naive. I'm sure those things do still happen, um, but the decision-making process is much faster now much more streamlined and people are very open and honest with their thoughts and views on different topics that are, are at hand. Okay. But no, so, no, no, you know, single answer to solve that issue that right. I'm aware of. What about your, um, the one-on-one meetings with your team? Do you run direct one-on-one meetings with your team? I do a combination of one-on-ones, uh, uh, and larger, all, all staff. So I do my direct reports as one meeting. I do one-on-ones, uh, with individuals. And then obviously we do, uh, all staff, you know, all operations and finance staff meetings. We'll do team meetings with each in separate discipline. The, The treasury team may have its own direct report don't or staff meeting. So we have multiple layers and I attend at least the ones that I control directly. I attend. And sometimes I participate in the subgroup meetings. 
like what percentage of your calendar, what percentage of your, you know, your, your week would be spent in meetings, do you think? Oh my goodness. In meetings across all types of meetings, I yeah. would say 80%. Uh, 90, 85, 90%. I mean, I, my admin always uh, kids me. I block off 730 to 830 and, you know, 530 to seven as my time. And I used to have that and now it's getting eaten up. So yeah, no, the percentage is pretty high. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's the reason I wrote the book Meetings Suck was I, the reality is meetings don't suck at all. We just suck at running meetings. The reality, you, know, you, you can't get away from them. You just have to learn how to leverage them and how to run them. And when you do, they're probably some of the, the leader's most effective time is getting results through people by leading and being involved in the meetings. And plus at this, at, you know, given the role that I'm in, uh, in this type of organization, I think that's almost part of my job. Yeah. Um, or that is my job. It's, and I'm not crunching out the number in the financial analysis or, or writing the, the infrastructure flow chart for, you know, it, uh, some systematic it change. I think my job is really just to sit, listen, advise, encourage, course, correct. And you do that by talking to people. And, and how has that had to change or iterate since we've gone, you know, online now in the last three months with Zoom, doing most of your meetings over Zoom or Skype? What have you had to do as an organization to change and adapt for meetings there? Um, you know, I, the only real big, I think the real, the real change is um, the instantaneous access to individuals. We still have our meetings. We've done board meetings on, on Microsoft Teams. We've done, uh, I, you know, I did a, 500 person, roughly all staff meeting from my team. Um, so I think that's just, that hasn't really missed a beat. And just like you and I are chatting now, it's very, very uh, fluid. Mm -hmm. But the advantage is people are, most people are sitting at their desk on their computer, looking at their computer. Um, and you can, I am them, you can call them directly and, um, there's a quicker turnaround time because you know, you're not walking down the cafeteria to get something to eat. You're not going out for a cup of coffee. You're not in a meeting with your phone is tucked away in your pocket. So I, I, there's a, there's more of an instantaneous access. On the other hand, it may be that you're losing concentration because you're trying to multitask too many ways. Yeah. A couple parts for sure. Any, um, any new technologies or, or automations that you guys are using as an organization? Well, you know, we just migrated to teams from Skype. Okay. Um, actually, I think the official date is next week. So we've been piloting it for the last uh, three or four months. Um, we have just taken on uh, over the last year um, Tableau, which is a, a reporting program, essentially, um, that, uh, that has been immensely helpful for us from a data analysis perspective. Um, and we are also undertaking what we call our digital business platform transformation, where we, we are updating our, our, what I'm going to use the term legacy marketing systems um, under the Salesforce and, um, you know, the AWS to allow us to have um, a better um, communication to our members and non-members. Um, so that's been a big push for us. I would imagine, push. do you run all of your marketing in-house? You must be big enough that you do most of that in-house or do you outsource any of that at all? We do a lot of it in-house. We have some things done out, outside, um, but our community, we have a very robust communication group, um, integrated communications and <clears throat> marketing group. 
And you're pretty digital as an organization as well, right? With the, the magazine, I guess, which is, is kind of part of the primary um, connection with your customer base. Is the digital side of that pretty big now too? Yes. And, you know, our website uh, is our primary digital communication vehicle. And I wish I had the, the unique visitors per month, but they are in the many, 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 many millions. Yeah. Um, we have digital newsletters that can go out to, you know, again, many, many millions of people, millions of people that participate in that. And we have a huge social media presence. So it's, you know, as the non-marketer, I would say we have the, the, the traditional marketing and communications, the print, we have the social, we have um, the web, and we pretty much, if it occurs, we're there. And we have to be. When you have 100 and whatever, 15 million people over the age of 50 in this country, not everyone wants to receive information and be communicated to the same way. Mm. So we have to be able to serve, you know, serve up information that someone wants when they want it and how they want it to be delivered. It's, you know, that's a, that's a big task when you have that big of an audience. I'm going to send you a note after we get off on an idea I've got for an article for the magazine um, that I think is, is pretty relevant to your audience, but I'll, I'll kind of cover it off later. Sure. Um, Forbes magazine in the print edition covered it a couple of years ago on, on this vision concept I have. But um, I want to wrap up with, with one quick question. If you were going back to your, I don't know, your 22-year-old self graduating from university or college and, and you wanted to give yourself some leadership advice, you know, advice that you know to be true now, but you didn't know when you were 21 or 22, what would you tell yourself back then? Oh, that's, that's easy. Um, I tell this to my, my daughters uh, who are close to that age. Um, you don't know as much as you think you do. And, um, you know, if you, if you understand that, um, and you, you just don't know as much as you think you do and experience, um, over time helps you become a better business person, better leader, better, whatever. Um, but you don't know that much, uh, as you think you do. It's pretty amazing, right? We think back when I was 21, I thought I knew it, had it all put together and man, I had no idea. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Me neither. I had no idea. I thought I did, but hindsight, I really didn't. I'm curious what we'll be like when we're 90, right? Looking back to today and thinking like, did we have it figured out in our early 50s or I don't know where you are, maybe late 40s, but you know, are we still I don't. It out? I don't think anybody uh, ever, I, I think that's the beauty of, of aging. And that's why, you know, when we say we want to empower people to choose how they live as they age experience is important experience matters and it helps to frame who you are um, yeah and that's that's exciting it's pretty cool time scott frisch executive vice president and coo for aarp i really appreciate the time and you sharing with us on the second command podcast thanks cameron thanks for having me yeah thanks for joining us you've been listening to second in command brought to you by coo alliance founder cameron harold if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.